I think it's possible that um, one or two people haven't heard, so I'll go ahead and fill you in too, that uh, I'm a grandpa again for the fourth time, yeah. So that's good news. Uh, John David uh, came into the world in the wee hours of Thursday morning, so mom and baby are doing well. So Simon and Jessica now with two sons, James and John, the sons of thunder, and uh, so I told them if they were to have one more and name him Peter, they would have the inner three. And so uh, they're well on their way. Either that or they'd have the beginning of an offensive line as well. And that'd be okay too, right? So, well, it's been, a, it's been an interesting week uh, through the generosity of, uh, of uh, a family. Um, my family had the opportunity to uh, go and do something that I love to do this past week, and that is to uh, watch a hockey game. And uh, so we had opportunity to go into the Stables Center. First time I'd ever uh, been in there to see a hockey game since the Kings had moved. And uh, the seats were just tremendous, uh, maybe 20 rows back from the ice. And, uh, you know, just close enough to really uh, get a good, enjoyable view of the game. We got in there early, and as we were sitting there looking around, I, my eyes went up to the nosebleed section, which is, if I were buying the tickets, where we would probably end up being, you know. And uh, I was looking at the, the, uh, the seating there, and it's, it's like this. It's, you know, you descend on a, on a stepladder down to the, uh, to the various rows. And I was watching that, and I, and I was looking in particular at the fronts of the balconies. Because I would have thought there would have been a big high wall, you know, but there's not. It's just enough to trip over as you're coming down. And, and I was sitting there thinking to myself, you know, if you were coming down those stairs and you weren't paying attention and you were to slip and fall, it doesn't seem like there was anything to keep you from coming right over the edge and all the way down into the expensive seats where we were. <laughs> so, And, you know, as I was thinking about that, it, it kind of reminded me of the Christian life. Reminded me of the Christian life. You know, how do I know that I will continue to be a Christian for the rest of my life? How do I know that? How do I know that I won't at some point commit some sin so heinous that it would be like the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back? And like that imaginary person coming down the staircase there in the upper deck at the Staples Center, that I might not trip and fall and, and plunge and tumble to my ruin. How do I know? I mean, I know my own heart. And I know the evil that dwells within. I know the thoughts that flash through my mind on occasion. God forbid if one of them were to ever become a reality. The uh, Roman Catholic Church answers this question by saying it is possible to kill the grace within your heart. That is official Roman Catholic teaching. They say that you can commit what was called a mortal sin, mortal because it kills the grace of justification that is yours at your baptism, according to the Roman system. And thus you can fall from grace. Their remedy is confession and the sacrament of penance, whereby grace is restored. It's called a second plank of justification for those who have made shipwreck of their souls. And thus in the Roman system, it is a lifelong process of killing the grace within your heart and then renewing it through penance and on and on it goes. But is that true? Is that what the Bible teaches? That we can slip and fall and kill the grace within us? Destroy the work of Christ within our hearts and thus forfeit the promise of eternal life? Is that what the Bible tells us? This whole question was kind of brought forward for us a couple of months ago when we were 
pursuing the letters to the churches, right, in Revelation. And in particular, the church at Sardis. And there in Revelation chapter 3 and in verse 5, we came to that most difficult and troubling statement about not being erased from the book of life. Do you remember that? And we passed through that verse rather quickly, admittedly. We were a bit of a time crunch that morning and there were other things that I needed to get to. And so I moved through the verse somewhat quicker than I normally would. And there were a number of questions that were raised throughout the week that followed. And people came to me or wrote to me and and said, could you go back and look at that again? And I told you I would do that. That when we finished with the seven letters to Revelation, we would go back to Revelation chapter 3, verse 5 and look again in greater detail at particular verse 5 there in chapter 3. And we'll do that this morning. But I don't want to do that in isolation. I want to do it in the context of this bigger question. This morning I want to explore with you the doctrine of perseverance. The doctrine of perseverance. You have a handout in your bulletin this morning. You might want to pull that out and would enable you to follow along. As we look together here at the doctrine of perseverance, and I want to do that with you so that we might correctly understand and rejoice in the security of our great salvation. There on that handout, I've given you a definition right near the top. Let me read it. You read along with me. This is lifted from Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. I think he's done a good job here of encapsulating in one sentence this doctrine. And I'm quoting him here. The perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. And that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. There are two sides to the question of perseverance. There is the perseverance from God's point of view and there is the perseverance from man's responsibility. And that should not trouble us or be new to us because whenever we run into doctrines of God, we find that there is a tension there between God's work and our responsibilities. And the Scripture is unashamed at presenting them both side by side. And it's the same here. So what I want to do with you this morning is begin to explore this definition by Grudem under the heading of kept by God. So let's just look at some scriptures together. Kept by God. Those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power. Let's take a look at that. I've given it to you here. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 37. Page 1066, if you're using those few Bibles. John 6, beginning in verse 37. And there are many, many scriptures, let me say, that we could turn to. I've selected just three because I think they are powerful and speak directly to the point. But there are many, many scriptures that could be brought to bear on this question. Jesus is speaking here, and he makes a rather amazing statement. Verse 37, all that the Father gives to me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. The emphasis in this passage is on the will of God. Three times, verses 38, 39, 40, it tells us it is the will of the Father that none are lost. It is the will of God that Jesus lose none, nothing of those whom the Father has given to Him. God's will is not thwarted in these 
matters. Turn with me now to John chapter 10 and let's look at another passage that speaks equally clearly about this. John 10 and verse 27, page 1073, most few Bibles. Jesus says again in verse 27 of John 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. These are terms of relationship. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Again, the emphasis here is that no one can snatch the believer from the hand of Christ. We are secure. We are protected in Jesus' hand. And the reason that we are protected is because we are a gift from the Father to Him. Look at verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. Do you see that? Again, the, the believers are a gift from the Father to the Son. The Bible talks about Christ being the groom, right? And the church being the bride. That the believers are the bride of Christ. And they have been given to the groom by the Father. They are His gift to them. It is the Father's will. These believers unite with Christ. These chosen ones. And so again... Very clearly, Jesus says, they shall never perish. No one can take them away. Let me turn you to another passage. Romans chapter 8. Page 1132. Those statements by Christ occur in the midst of what's called discourse or or conversation that's going on between him and various uh, Jewish authorities and so forth. Here, the Apostle Paul lays it out in a much more theological way. He uses bigger words and he builds his case. And notice here in verse 30, maybe we'll just back up to verse 29 and get a running start at it. We are introduced to here to what's called the golden chain of redemption. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That is, that he set him apart ahead of time to become like Jesus Christ, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Do you see why they call it the golden chain of redemption? Links, one snapped into the next. It begins with those whom He foreknew. He then predestines them to ultimately be glorified. Do you see that at the end of verse 30? And all along the way, there are no dropouts. Those whom He predestined, it doesn't say that some of these He called, and of those few that He called, uh, you know, a handful more are justified, and of those He justified, a handful more are glorified. Jim spoke earlier of the statistics of our neighborhood uh, ambassador's ministry. 10,000 doors knocked on, right? Approximately half of those with someone home, and, and uh, less than that of those that are willing to talk to you, and far less than that are willing to to allow you to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. There's a diminishing return along the way. And Jim didn't say this, but even a fewer number of those who are willing to make a faith commitment to Jesus Christ. So along the way there, we see tremendous drop-off, but that's not what we see in this passage here. In this passage here, what we see is that this group of people whom God has foreknown, He carries all the way through to glorification. Notice, by the way, verse 30 at the end. These He also glorified, past tense. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm not glorified yet. It's something I'm looking forward to, amen? It is a future reality from my point of view, but from God's point of view, the certainty of it is so firm that He speaks of it in a past tense. It is an accomplished event. 
accomplished event. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. It doesn't matter what happens, Paul says. We overwhelmingly conquer. We don't just squeak by. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. It's like the Apostle Paul gets a telescope. And he searches the heavens from one end of the universe to the other, looking for whatever could be out there that might somehow separate us from the love of Christ. And then he turns inward and he examines all around the spiritual world, the created world, all that can be seen and cannot be seen. And his conclusion is that there is nothing out there, nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. This section, beloved, it's like bookends. Verse 30 is one bookend, a golden chain of redemption. Verses 38 and 39 is the other bookend that closes off this tremendous collection of truth. And at the beginning and at the end, his conclusion is that nothing can separate us from Christ. There is nothing that can fracture our union with Jesus Christ. Nothing outside of us. Nothing inside of us. Now, some may postulate that Paul doesn't specifically make a statement here that says that, well, we, he doesn't say you cannot separate yourself from Christ. He doesn't say that, you know, no one can snatch you out of his hand, but he doesn't say you can't climb out on your own. I try to treat that with the, some measure of dignity, although I have disdain in my heart for it. Anyone who truly knows Jesus Christ, I can't imagine them even thinking that they might want to climb out of his hand. But even if you will grant that, where would that person fall? Would they not be part of a created thing? Would they not fall into the no one can snatch category? Beloved, there is probably no, indeed there is no clearer way to say what the truth is, and that is we are eternally secure in Christ. And the reason we are eternally secure is because God is actively at work preserving that security. You know, God keeps us justified, right? The Bible says we are justified by faith, right? We place faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ and, and that is our justification before God. But then we sin, don't we? We do that which we ought not to do. We think thoughts we ought not think. We fail to do that which we should do. We are sinners saved by grace and we continue to sin against Christ. Yet the Apostle Paul tells us that God maintains our justified position because as we sin, He pours out grace upon us. Grace upon grace. Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. 
The Apostle Paul says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Every time you sin, God just pours out more grace upon you. And He maintains you in your position of justification. That's why you cannot fall from grace. That's why you cannot commit a sin that breaks the camel's back. Because every time you stumble and fall, God just drowns you in His grace. It's like having dinner in a nice restaurant. Where every time you take a sip from a glass of water, there's a waiter at your elbow who fills the glass right back up again, right? Drink all the water you want. It's bottomless. The glass is always full. And if it's a good restaurant, you never even see him fill it. That's what God does for you. He continues to replenish the grace that's being consumed in your sin. We are kept by God. Kept by God. Perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. Now, there is another side to this. Only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. There is a human responsibility that goes hand in hand with God's work. And so on your outline, I've given you that. I'm calling it requirements to persevere. There are requirements that go with this. Grace enabled requirements, but requirements nonetheless. Turn in your Bibles over to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, page 1197. If you're using those hymn, those pew Bibles. This is a representative verse, and again, there are a number of verses that could be brought forward to illustrate this point. Let me set the context for you of Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, or at least of the book of Hebrews, so we can put this in some kind of a understanding. The letter to the Hebrews was written by an apostle to this small group of Jewish Christians. Sometime, probably shortly before the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. And he is writing to this group who have place their faith in Christ as the Messiah, but in the process of doing so, they have become cut off from their family members, from the synagogue of which they were a part, from their their neighbors and from their business relationships. They have been ostracized. They have been persecuted. They have been cut off. And the problem is, is that they are feeling such intense pressure upon them that they are beginning to waffle a little. Not with their understanding that Jesus is Messiah, but with, their, with the, the understanding that they must turn from the old covenant to the new. That is, that they must abandon the rituals of Judaism to embrace the reality of Christ. And so what they are contemplating, and some are falling prey to, is not abandoning Christ, but bringing some of the old stuff with them along with Christ. To try to take the sharp edge off their Christianity. So that they don't stand out so much. So that they don't suffer such persecution. They want to become a little more like their society. A little less distinctively Christian. Falling back from their full allegiance to Christ. And so the apostle pins this letter to to warn this church. This church, like every other church, is made up of true believers. And make-believers, that is, those who think they're Christian and are not. And believer, are unbelievers who come along for the ride for one reason or another. And this verse aptly illustrates the other side of the doctrine of perseverance. Where he says in verse 14, For we have become partakers of Christ if... 
we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's when they provoked me. One of the signs of genuine faith is the perseverance of the believer. It is the attachment of the believer to Jesus Christ. It is one of the visible means by which they themselves and others can know that they are truly recruit or, or, or redeemed, truly born again. How do I know that I am a follower of Christ? How do you know that I'm a follower of Christ? You know because I'm following Him. You know because I follow Him. How do you know in your own heart whether you're a follower of Christ? Are you following Him? That's how you know. Hebrews 14 tells us that. We have become partakers of Christ. We are indeed the followers of Jesus Christ if we follow Christ. If we hold fast. It also serves a warning function. It serves a warning function. It is to warn those who are in danger of falling away. It is to warn those of you here this morning who are in danger of falling away. That your love for Jesus Christ is growing cold. That your commitment to Christ and His work is growing cold. That that which you once professed and was a reality in your life is now more blurry and obscured. It is a warning to you to come back. To come back to Christ. Because if you are thinking about falling away or indeed you have fallen away, you must know that if you do this, it is a very strong indicator that you are never part of Christ in the first place. Apostle John says in 1 John 2 and verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. Those that walk away from Christ demonstrate they're not part of Christ. Jesus addresses it in Matthew 13, verses 20 and 21, the parable of the soils. Do you remember? He tells the parable about the four different kinds of soils, and one is a rocky soil where the seed doesn't have much depth of soil. It's actually not soil like around upland, you know, where it's full of potatoes, but it's soil that is uh, thinly spread over a, over a limestone ridge. They didn't know there was rock under the soil. And so they would scatter the seed in the soil, and it would receive the heat of the sun and the water, and it would send down its root, but its root would hit the limestone ridge and would be unable to go deep. And so the growth would be forced into the, into the blossom. And so it would spring up quickly and it would look like life. But there's no depth to the soil. There's, the root is not going anywhere and it withers and dies. Listen, Jesus says, and the one on whom seed is sown among the rocky places. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. The plant looks good until the pressure comes and then it disappears. How do you know that you are a follower of Jesus Christ? Are you following Jesus Christ? Are you following Jesus Christ? God uses warnings as a means to bring about His will of perseverance. God warns us frequently in the Scriptures that He might use that as a means by which we would hang on to Christ. I've used this illustration before, but 
Since I got another grandchild, I guess I'll use it again. When I take one of my grandchildren for a walk, I reach out my hand, I say, hold on to Grampy's hand while we cross this street. Does the security of that child depend on his grip upon my hand or does it depend on my grip upon his? Yet I still instruct him to hold on to my hand. In a similar way, God continues to instruct us to hang on to Christ. But beloved, the security of our position does not rely on our feeble grip on him, but on his massive grip on us. Go to Romans or uh, Revelation 3. Let's take another look at the church at Sardis, Revelation 3, page 1227. In particular, verse 5. Let me begin reading in verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write He who has the seven spirits of God. And the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. If, therefore, you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Not going to do it again for you, but we demonstrated some months ago that the overcomers that are referred to here in each of the letters is another name for a follower of Christ, a true follower of Christ. A believer is an overcomer. It is not some special class of Christians. It is indeed those who by faith have embraced the atoning work of Jesus Christ. They are the overcomers. And to these overcomers, Christ gives a threefold promise here in verse Five. They are the remnant. You notice I have a few people, verse 4. God deals in remnants. That's always the way God does mathematics. He, he does it in remnants. It's always a few, not the many, who follow the true God. And so to this faithful remnant, he offers them a threefold promise of blessing in verse 5. And that's what verse 5 is all about. It is blessing. It is blessing. The first blessing that he offers here in the beginning part of verse 5 is that he who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments. Those who persevere and show themselves genuine will be clothed in white garments, he says. Clothed in white garments. It's essentially a repetition, by the way, the end of the promise in verse 4, right? They will walk with me in white. The repetition of that promise, it's kind of building off of that. White garments is is representative here of righteousness, purity, holiness. He's saying that the true believer will be eternally clothed in purity, in holiness. The flesh will no longer soil our garments. We will walk in purity, he says. The problems... The struggles, the difficulties, the failures, the out-and-out rebellions that mark the lives of all followers of Jesus Christ to one degree or another will no longer harass us, no longer trouble us. We will be clothed in white garments. I don't know about you, beloved, but I'd love to escape the pressure and the failures characterize my life i'm tired of fighting against sin and failing along the way it's a promise of blessing 
that I will be clothed, that a follower of Jesus Christ will be eternally clothed in white, righteous garments. All the longings of my heart, all that I really want to be, will be a full reality. Struggle against sin will be over. Clothed in white garments. Secondly, he says, I will not erase his name from the book of life. Those who persevere, those who show themselves genuine, he's promising that they will surely receive the promise of eternal life. You will surely receive it. That's the blessing that he's offering you. The book of life is referred to in Revelation five times. Five places referred to besides this. Let's look at a couple of those to get a little fuller understanding of what he's talking about. So go to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13, the context is the Antichrist and his persecution of the followers of God who are there and alive amongst the tribulation. You know, when the church is snatched away prior to the beginning of the tribulation period, there will be some who will repent of their independence, their their disbelief, and they will embrace Christ as Messiah But they will suffer during that seven-year period intense persecution from the Antichrist. Verse 7, it was given to him, that is the Antichrist, to make war with these saints and to overcome them. You see, beloved, uh, if you embrace Christ now before the tribulation, you will have tribulation in this life. Apostle Paul says that for sure. But if you wait until the church has been raptured to be finally convinced and you embrace Christ during the tribulation period, you are virtually guaranteed martyrdom. It was given to him to make war with the saints, he says, and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. All those whose names have not been written in the book from the foundation of the world. He says he will overcome them. Go over to chapter 17, verse 8. And there he says, the beast that you saw was and is not. And is about to come up out of the abyss and will go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth will wonder. Whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. When they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Again, he is dividing humanity into two groups during this tribulation time. There are those whose names have been written in the book of life from the foundation of the the earth. And there are the others who are overcome by the beast. What is this book of life? This register in which people's names are written from the foundation of the world. Well, if you'll turn back to the left to Ephesians chapter 1. In verse 4, we can bring some clarity to this. Ephesians 1 and verse 4, it says, Just as He, God, chose us in Him, is in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Before the foundation of the world, God planned the redemption of a people, a remnant. And their names were written in a book. They were enrolled in a register. He knew exactly, personally, who each and every one would be that he would someday redeem. 
And in the mind of God, who exists outside of time, Christ was slain. He offered himself to redeem that people. The father said to him, I have a, I have a bride for you that I will give to you as a wedding gift. But on one condition, you must go and die to redeem them. And if you go and die and redeem that people unto yourself, you will have this bride. And so, back before the foundation of the earth, meaning before time as you and I know it, this eternal plan of God was put in place. A people, specifically, name by name, enrolled in a register to experience eternal life. Go back to Revelation 3. To this harassed remnant in Sardis, Jesus speaks words of encouragement, words of blessing. He says to them that the pressure that you have been experiencing as you've lived here in the flesh will be removed when you will receive the white garments. He says next to them that, that, the, that the security of your place in the book of life is forever secure. You need not fear the loss. Regardless of what happens to you, regardless of the persecution that comes upon you, regardless of the difficulties that you encounter, your place is secure. Your name on the register is secure. Now, some want to take this promise of blessing and kind of turn it on its head and turn it into a threat. They want to make a threat from this and and extract from this some sort of a threat of losing your place, of losing the salvation that has been eternally awarded to you. And they do that by going back into Exodus chapter 32. I will turn you back there. The context of Exodus 32 is the golden calf. You remember this. The nation of Israel has already pledged their allegiance to God, who has delivered them from the land of Egypt. They have said all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then immediately they go out and begin idol worship. And so Moses comes down to them and he is incredible distress. Verse 30, and it came about on the next day that Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I am going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Perhaps there's some way we can, I can cover this over. And then Moses returned to the Lord. And he said, alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a God of gold for themselves. But now if you will forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. What book is he talking about? Well, if we were to cross-reference over to Psalm 69, verse 28, we won't do that for the sake of time. But it is there called the book of the living. The book of the living. And there in Psalm 69 and verse 28, we are told that both the righteous and the wicked, their names are in the book of the living. So I believe what Moses is here asking God is because of his great love for the people. He is saying that, that rather than disinherit and destroy this people that you have redeemed, just slay me. Just slay me. Erase my name from the book of the living. Kill me instead of killing all of them. Of course, we know how God responded, right? He sent a plague among them and slew many whose names were then erased from the book of the living. 
I believe that Moses is not talking here about erasure from a book of eternal life. He's talking about the death of the people in rebellion against God. Go back to Revelation 3 again. To those who genuinely follow Christ, He will clothe them in white garments. Their place in the the register of the elect is forever secure. And He will confess their name before His Father and before His angels. The end of verse 5, Revelation 3. The third part of the promised blessing. Not only will they be clothed in white, not only are they assured to overcome in a permanent place in heaven, but they will have Christ as their advocate. He will affirm both before the Father and the angels that these redeemed sinners belong to Him. It's possible that He will read the Lamb's book of life. And He will read the names and the register of the elect, saying, Father, They belong to me. They are covered in my blood. I have atoned for their sin. They are mine. Beloved, the permanency of our salvation is guaranteed by the power of God. It is also designed to encourage us in the midst of difficulties. That's what he's doing here in Revelation 3 and verse 5. He's encouraging this small remnant in the midst of an apostate church. You know, when we go door to door in the neighborhoods, we frequently ask people this question. If you were to die tonight and stand before God and he says to you, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you answer him? It is an amazing question because it closes most people's mouths. They have no answer. Or if they do answer, it has something to do with how good they are and how hard they've tried. They have no assurance. They have no assurance. They're not, they don't really know what will happen and the honest ones will admit it. If you have placed your faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ this morning, then you do have an answer. Should you die and stand before God tonight and He says, why should I let you into my heaven? Your answer would be, you shouldn't. I don't deserve it. I have done nothing to deserve it. In fact, I deserve damnation. But another has died for me. You sent your own son who bore my sin on that cross, who died my death, and who has granted to me his righteousness. And so by faith, I believe that he is my ticket into your heaven. Let me circle back with you this morning on a few things. Giving them to you on the handout. I'm going to cover these quickly. Ron, I think we're going to drop that song. Evidences of genuine conversion. Let me go over these with you. Maybe you need to do a little soul searching this morning about your relationship with Christ. Well, here's the question to ask yourself Do I presently trust in Christ alone for salvation? the first question you need to ask yourself. For God so loved the world that whosoever should believe in Him shall not perish, right? But have everlasting life. Grammatically, we have a present participle. So what? Well, this is what. It could legitimately be translated, whoever continues believing in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It requires a continual believing in Christ. How do you know that you are genuinely saved? Don't look back to something you did 
20 years ago, 30 years ago, two months ago? How do you know? Are you presently trusting in Christ? That's how you know. Are you presently trusting in Christ? And if you are not, you don't have any security. Beyond that, are there other evidences that can be looked at? There's a question of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in my life. Can I see the work of the Holy Spirit within my life? Romans 8, verse 16, it says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. How does the Spirit of God bear witness with our spirit? How does He do this? He leads us in the paths of obedience to the will of God. Romans 8, 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Is He leading you in the paths of obedience? That's a sign of your genuine conversion. Is he reproducing within you the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians two, uh, 5, verses 22 and 23. Is he causing you to be submissive to the teaching of his word? 1 John 4, 6. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who, does not, who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John says... We know the followers of Christ because they submit themselves to the Word of God, the teachings of Christ. Can I discern a long-term pattern of spiritual growth in my life? It's another evidence of your conversion. Am I presently believing? Is there evidence of the regenerating work of Christ within my life? And is there a long-term pattern of growth? Can I look back and see where I have come from? To see that I am indeed being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, Romans 8.29. Am I being made like Christ? Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10, just write it down. It comes at the end of a list of character qualities. Things like moral excellence and knowledge of God and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love and so forth. And Peter says that if these things are yours and are continuing to increase in your life, by this you know that you are a child of God. Beloved, Christians aren't stuck in a rut. They don't sit still. If there's not a sanctification, that's just a big theological word to talk about what we're saying here. If, if sanctification is not operative, if there's not a pattern of growth in your life, if you're not becoming more like Jesus Christ, if you're not more like Christ now than you were in the past, then you have things to worry about. Life produces life. If the life of the Spirit of God is alive in your heart, then it will show itself. I jotted down a few benefits here. I've got them for you on your handout. I'll just give them to you quickly. Benefits of this doctrine. Why study this doctrine? Well, here they are, quickly. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints eliminates the paralyzing fear of guilt. That somehow maybe you have committed some sin that is so heinous that God couldn't possibly forgive that and you've now been sidelined for Christ. In the words of Martin Luther and the possibility of being misunderstood, go and sin boldly. For Jesus Christ will wash your sin in his blood. There is no sin that will sideline you for Christ. Secondly, it encourages spiritual risk-taking. It encourages spiritual risk-taking. It enables you to live and minister among sinners without fear of Contamination. You are eternally secure in Christ. Don't worry about it. You're to rub off on them. They will not rub off on you in such a way to somehow keep you outside the kingdom. Third, it enlarges your courage in the face of persecution. It enlarges your courage in the face of persecution. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, at the end of his life, right? He says, I've run the course. I've kept the faith. There now is laid up for me a crown of glory. Don't worry about it. 
There's nothing that man can do to you that will separate you from the love of Christ. Lastly, it encourages your true and heartfelt worship. You want to stimulate your worship, your worship a little flat? Just think on what God has done for you in Christ and respond back to Him in worship. Let me do this as we prepare to take communion together. Let me remind you of the gospel. Can I do that? Let me remind you of this great gospel. We've been talking now for quite a while about one aspect of it. But let me remind you of the totality of this gospel. You know, when we take communion, I stand up here and I can look around at all your faces and it's interesting to see what some people do, what others do. Let me give you a little instruction. What should you be doing? Well, here's a suggestion for you. Think on the gospel. Meditate upon the gospel, on the truths of the gospel to prepare your heart to receive this symbolic meal that evidences your union with Jesus Christ. Confess your sin. But we don't take communion in order to confess our sin. This is not a time once a month to get right with God, you know, confess all our sins so that I can then take communion. This is a time to rejoice in what Christ has done for you. Listen. While you were in open defiance against your Creator, He in His mercy reached out to you and provided an innocent substitute to bear the penalty for your sin. That substitute was His own Son who willingly died in your place in accordance with the eternal plan whereby God had graciously decided to save His own enemies. Because you had no interest in Him, God sought you out and through His Holy Spirit created the faith you needed to embrace His gift for you. In effecting your salvation, God not only freed you from the penalty of your sin, but also from its enslavement, granting you access to the power necessary to say no to sin's enticements. When you fail to say no to sin and reject God's will for you, He feels no wrath towards you, but He floods you with His grace in order to maintain your justification. Conversely, when you reject sin's allure, God's love for you does not increase. His love for you did not end with your salvation, but extends to every circumstance and difficulty of life, whereby He subjugates them and forces them to do you good. Someday God will remove you from this life, either by death or Christ's triumphant return, and your struggle against sin will cease. At that point, you will enjoy unhindered fellowship with your Creator, your Redeemer, and your friend. That's what this meal is all about. Let's pray. Gentlemen, if you'll come forward, please. Heavenly Father, how great a salvation has been secured for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. That there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That His atonement is so full, so complete, so perfect, extinguishing every bit of our guilt, washing us clean, and then lending us His righteousness that we might, as it were, have a robe, a white garment draped about us, fitting us to be in Your presence. We're there, Lord God, the vestiges of sin that continue to harass us will be done away with. And that we will enjoy unhindered fellowship with You. In the meantime, our Father, You have left us here for a purpose. 
The purpose is to demonstrate your glory in the redemption of sinners. That your enemies could now become your friends and your spokesmen and spokeswomen. And you have given us a memorial, a simple ceremony, a, a meal to take together to proclaim what has been done. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving your life for mine. Amen.